When is the last time that you wept? Do you have any recollection of the last time in your life that you were swallowed up with grief? Uh, Almost unable to move because of the weight of it. As if you have been immobilized, uh, unable to, uh, you're standing in quicksand, completely uncomfortable, possibly with your vocal cords paralyzed. You don't know what to say, you don't know why to say it, you don't know what words are supposed to come out. Just grieving. When is the last time that you wept? And why was it that you wept? That's just as important of a question. What, what caused you to come to this place of, of grief and sorrow? Two songs ago, one of our church members walks up to me and shares that there's a, a coach in Angleton. His wife passed away last night. And I want to take a moment to pray over them. And for us to consider that what we look at in this world, sin is real. And it's affected everything. We would ask God to meet with us and over the next few weeks together. When is the last time that you really wept? Jesus, we thank you for the chance that we have to look into your word. God, we, right now we pray for the community in Angleton. We pray for Coach Josie and for the family. We pray for the way that this will affect everyone. God, I pray as we come together around your word today for the first time, looking at this new book in the Bible, for us, that we'll see the value and and the power of all of your word that you speak to us. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus, and everybody says... Amen. I'm going to utter a phrase I've never uttered ever in my entire life. I would like you to turn your Bibles to the book of Lamentations. It's the 25th book of the Bible. It is an account of the author weeping over the destruction of the city of Jerusalem. He weeps because he's watching as God simultaneously loves and chastens his people. We're not really sure who wrote it. It could be five individual authors. It's really anonymous. However, Jeremiah chapter 9 kind of tips its hat to the fact that he may be the guy who wrote it. There's a small introduction in the Greek translation of the Bible called the Septuagint. And it actually reads like this from right before you get to the whole of Lamentations, it reads, And it came to pass, after Israel was taken captive and Jerusalem was made desolate, that Jeremiah sat weeping and lamented with this lamentation over Jerusalem. This aligned with what we see in Jeremiah chapter 9 is where he says, I will raise weeping and a lament over the mountains, a dirge over the wilderness, grazing land for they have been so scorched that no one passes through the sound of cattle is no longer heard from the birds of the sky to the animals everyone has fled they've all gone away Jeremiah was was pretty young probably around 24 26 when he started prophesying over Israel and the strangest thing uh, about 
that was no one would listen to him. No matter what he said, no one would listen as this prophet went before them. He wasn't even supposed to be a prophet. He was born to a priest. And the way that that would work in the days of the Bible was a priest, would his son would more than likely be a priest. Somehow God meets him in the midst of that. And God takes him to the place where he will be the one who speaks on behalf of God to the people and says to them the things that need to be said to the people of Judah specifically, telling them that they should turn from their sin and turn from their false gods and turn to the true God that they are claiming to be in right relationship with. The Bible word for it is covenant relationship. And the most unique thing happens, it's really not that unique, it's altogether common when he confronted them, they didn't listen. No one would respond to the idea of them being turned from the real God of the Bible. There's a, a painting from Rembrandt. I'm not sure how he knew what was happening, but from a painting from Rembrandt, it's his a reflection of what took place in the city of Jerusalem while possibly... The writer Jeremiah sits in a cave. And you can't see much there because it's a little bit blurry because Google wouldn't give me Rembrandt's official painting. But when you look to the painting, you'll see there are artifacts from the temple because the temple is being destroyed. It's laid under siege. In the background, if you're to look at this on your own device, not now, but to look at this, you'll see that the armies of Babylon are marching in to take away and to undo and to break all the good that God uh, has been doing in that people. The temple is under siege and it's overwhelmed. When we look to the book of Lamentations, we, we see that there is a story of, of weeping and wailing and hurt. And if you're in a room like this and this is unfamiliar with you, you may be asking, why in the world will we choose to walk through this book? Jared and I had a conversation two years ago. And I said, I think I'm going to preach Lamentations for a summer series. And I held on to it. I kept wrestling and wondering and thinking through, why in the world would I ever open this? Well, there are the overview answers to that. One, as a pastor, I'm convicted that we should open the Scriptures and teach the whole of God's Word. And the whole of Scripture shows us that God has something to say to us from every page, from every dot, from every drip of ink on this book. That this is more than ink on paper. It's the breathed Word of God for His people. Simultaneously, we, we look at this book and we see that right now for us as a church, if you're a member of the church as a whole, we follow church calendar to an extent. There's the season of Advent. We're moving towards what some call the season of Lent. Now, hear me out. We're not doing ashes or anything like that. But the idea of building towards Easter is intended for us to walk in steps of grief and sorrow and despair. There is no better book for grief and sorrow and despair than the book of Lamentations. I'm going to be really clear with you. I struggled with the book. I've read through it and listened through it and read through it again and tried to find a peppy version. And every time that I go through the book, it's just heavy. It's heavy. And when you lean in at times to communicating things through personality and humor or whatever, to look at a book like Lamentations is difficult because there's just not a lot of funny here. It's all weeping and pain. And, and it starts with the idea of this brokenness of the people. 
And the brokenness of the people in the first chapter can be described in three ways. So what I'm going to do is read through Lamentations chapter 1. That's all we're going to do today because I think that's all we can handle. And we'll look at at how the book works and why the book works and what God may be teaching us from a book about weeping and sorrow and grief. How? How she sits alone, the city once crowded with people. She who was great among the nations has become like a widow. The princes among the provinces, have, the princess among the provinces, have been put to forced labor. She weeps bitterly during the night with tears on her cheeks. There's no one to offer her comfort, not one from all of her lovers. All of her friends have betrayed her. They have become her enemies. Judah has gone into exile following affliction and harsh slavery. She lives among the nations but finds no place to rest. All her pursuers have overtaken her in narrow places. The roads to Zion mourn for no one comes to the appointed festivals. All her gates are deserted. Her priests groan. Her young women grieve. And she herself is bitter. Her adversaries adversaries have become her masters. Her enemies are at ease. For the Lord has made her suffer because of her many transgressions. Her children have gone away as captives during the adversary, before the adversary. All the splendor has vanished from, the, from daughter Zion. Her, her leaders are like stags that find no pasture. They stumble away exhausted before the hunter. During the days of her affliction and her homelessness, Jerusalem remembers all her precious belongings that were Hers in the days of old, when her people fell into the adversary's hands, she had no one to help. The adversaries looked to her, laughing over her downfall. Certain Jerusalem had sinned grievously, therefore she's become an object of scorn. All who honored her now despise her, for they have seen her nakedness. She herself groans and turns away. Her uncleanness stains her Skirts. She never considered her end. Her downfall was astonishing. There was no one to comfort her Lord. Look on my affliction. For the enemy boasts. The adversary has seized all her precious belongings. She has even seen the nations enter her sanctuary. Those who had forbidden to enter your assembly. All her people groan while they search for bread. They have traded their precious belongings for food in order to stay alive. Lord, look... And see how I have become despised. Is this nothing to you, all you who pass by? Look and see, is there any pain like mine which was dealt out to me, which the Lord made me suffer on the day of his burning anger? He sent fire from on high into my bones. He made it descend. He spread a net for my feet and turned me back. He made me desolate, sick all day long. My transgressions have been formed into a yoke. Fastening together by, fastened together by his hand, they have been placed on my neck, and the Lord has broken my strength. 
He has handed me over to those who I cannot stand. The Lord has rejected all the mighty men with me. He has summoned an army against me to crush my young warriors. The Lord has trampled virgin daughter Judah like grapes in a winepress. I weep because of these things. My eyes flow with tears for there is no one nearby to comfort me. No one to keep me alive. My children are desolate because the enemy has prevailed. Zion stretches out her hands. There's no one to comfort her. The Lord has issued a decree against Jacob that his neighbors should be his adversaries. Jerusalem has become something impure among them. The Lord is just. The Lord is just, for I have rebelled against his command. Listen, all you people, look at my pain. My young women and young men have gone into captivity. I called to my lovers, but they betrayed me. My priests and my elders perished in the city while searching for food to keep themselves alive. Lord, see how I am in distress. I am churning within. My heart is broken, for I have been very rebellious. Outside the sword, outside the sword takes the children. Inside there's a death. People have heard me groaning, but there is no one to comfort me. All my enemies have heard of my misfortune. They are glad that you have caused it. Bring on the day that you have announced, so that they may become like me. Let all your wickedness come before you. And deal with them as you have dealt with me because of all my transgressions. For my groans are many. I am sick at heart. The actual title of the book in the original language is not the term lamentations. It's the word how. Alas is also how it's translated. So for any of us who are in this space, very much like I have been in the conference room here in our church, working through this passage as to why in the world this would mean anything to the people in our congregation and the people of our community and our world in the year 2024. If you're wondering how you're supposed to attach to this passage, is to look at the effect that sin has had on the world and to see how it trickles down. We've all asked the question, how? I would assume. I had a friend this week on Facebook. He posted that his stage 3 cancer has metastasized to stage 4. It's in his lungs. And there is no question whatsoever to the fact that he more than likely said, how is this cancer back? As strong of a Christian as you may be, how is the cancer back? There are many in this room who've asked the same question in regard to sickness and illness. How is the cancer back? If you watch enough uh, interactions between people and, and you follow anything in regard to studies as to what marriage is and how marriage works, more than likely you have asked the question, how is my marriage crumbling? You know someone who has, if, if it is not you personally, how is my marriage crumbling? Or you look as you have moved beyond the marriage, the, the place where you're on the other side of divorce, and you look to your former significant other and you say, how has that person already moved on? You've looked at your resources and your finances and you've said, how am I supposed to pay the bills? More than likely, you, you have looked at your own life in regard to the way that you treat others when you're frustrated or anger, angry or overwhelmed. How am I supposed to deal with this anger? And if none of these hows cover yours, more than likely you still have a how because all of us do. If you ever ever asked the question, how has this happened? This book is for you. It speaks to you. 
when we look to the text, we see that the, there really is no answer that's given other than maybe, just maybe, there's something on the other side of this. Whenever we look at Old Testament passages, especially things that are unique in their structure, whether it's a prophecy or a lament, texts like this, there are moments for us where we look and we see there may not be an answer on this side. The writer of the book of Lamentations, the more than likely Jeremiah, as I said, has this huge howl in his mind as he looks into the distance over a city that he has prayed and preached and prophesied over for 40 years. and said, how have we gotten here? How have we gotten here? overwhelmed, moved. And, and when you look to the text, you can see, here's what he does in verses 1 through 7. He describes the pain of the city of Jerusalem. You'll, you'll notice that. He describes the pain of Jerusalem. You, you can see it in the words that I just read. They're struggling, they're hurting. Uh, more, also, more than just describing the pain, he's going to explain it in verses 8 through 18. Explaining the pain. And then in the last three verses of the chapter, he reflects on it. This how is very present in this text as he looks as a people consider who they are in light of who their God is and why it seems as if God is so far away. If you've ever had a moment where you felt as if God was far away from you, the book of Lamentations is beneficial for you. The book of Lamentations meets us in these places where we consider the macro and the micro impact of sin and we see how it does things to us that we never believed could be done. How? The central idea of the text as we look to this is we respond to sin by calling out to God. We respond to sin by calling out to God. And as the writer of the book of Lamentations is pointing this out, he's speaking about the people of Judah, the people of Jerusalem. And as he speaks of them, he moves them from a place where you're looking at... He moves them from a place where you're talking about a city to talking about a person. It makes it processable for us. I'm not sure if that's a word, but we're going to run with it. Because we can talk about the wickedness of cities, but you're not a city. The writer of the book, the Lord, the Holy Spirit of God, works through the writer of the book and shows himself through the writer by calling the city Lady Jerusalem keeps referring to her, that idea, in various ways. To let us sit in the pain of what he feels as he looks at a people who have turned from God. He, this weighs on him. And, and you'll notice in verses 1 through 7, as the writer speaks of her, you see how her decisions have moved her to a not great place. The, the people of Jerusalem were trusting in foreign gods and foreign idols. They were actually at one point carving the images of false gods on the temple. And you see that here, Jeremiah wants us to see that now she sits alone. Not only does she sit alone, you have this woman who has coerced and 
entered into relationships with the various pagan gods of the day and the pagan enemies of the day. And these very present pagan enemies, she's invited to be her friend. And when you invite things that are outside of what God would want for us to befriend you, they will eventually do to you what they do to Jerusalem, which is presented to us through this woman. You notice in the text that she moves from a place where, where she's a queen to a place where she is a widow to a place where she's enslaved. Because that's what happens when we as a people invite sin to interact with us in ways that it should not. And when it becomes things that it is not supposed to be. We look to this text and we see that God has something to say to us. Because when we are asking the hard question of why in the world as a church we would ever go through a strange, strange book like this, it reminds us that when we grieve, it shows us things. When you weep and when you are broken, it shows you things about yourself and about the world in which you live. It shows you things about the good news of Jesus. It shows us the gospel in ways that standing stone-faced in the face of difficulty never will. We are declaring things when we read through a book like Lamentations. And when you lament personally, you're declaring things. You're looking at the world around you and you're saying, this is not right. All is not right. All is not well. That's what we feel. That's what we say. When we look into the face of death, we, this is not the way. When Jesus wept over the tomb of Lazarus, N.T. Wright says that Jesus wept because as he looked at the tomb of his friend, he knew this is not the way the world is supposed to be. And every time any of us deal with sin or wickedness, we should be reminded that sin and wickedness is intended to show us death. And that this is not the way that the world is supposed to grieve. When we grieve as a people over sin for what it is, we are saying that there's a path. There's a path forward. And when we do not grieve, we are saying there is no path. When we grieve, we are saying there's a place that is whole for us to go to where we were moving toward God who makes broken people whole. Because God's going to use pain to recalibrate our hearts in ways that we would never expect and never think. One writer says this, We lament. So we will know what to do when pain strangles us and darkness is our closest friend. Have you ever felt that? Strangled by pain, overwhelmed by it. The definition of lament, according to Mark Rogop, which whose name I'm more than likely mispronounced, and I apologize, is a lament is a prayer in pain that leads us to trust. So for every one of us grieving something today in the midst of this congregation, would we express to the God of the Bible our pain and pray and trust that it will move us to trust? The book of Lamentations is unique because it follows an, an acrostic. If you, look at your Bible and, and maybe, just maybe you'll notice, there are some Hebrew letters there uh, 
And you can actually see the way they're transliterated in some translations. Aleph, Bet. If you have that in your scripture, can you just raise your hand? Okay, right there above the verses. The book of Lamentations follows the pattern of the Hebrew alphabet. And the reason that it follows the pattern of the Hebrew alphabet, we're not exactly sure. Three of the five chapters do that. We're not sure why, but there is one thing that I read that makes the most sense to me. Jeremiah, as he looked at the people of Israel who were being overtaken and overwhelmed by Babylon, he was trying to express what was taking place in the midst of chaos and give it some order. That's what makes sense to me because that's what I do. That's what most of us do. We want to give chaos. We want to give order to chaos that we see. When my mom passed away, I was 16 years old. I remember those days that felt like years in the moment. And I remember being at my house and everyone trying to just to give structure to my life as I grieved. And you may have been there. You may be there right now giving structure to your life as you grieve. I wanted structure for those days because I couldn't control anything. So you control what you can until you burst. The first four laments that you see in this book are structure to chaos. Actually, chapter 1 and chapter 5, we're looking at the city and and we're seeing what takes place. It gets a little more in the weeds in 2 and 4. There's a tad bit of hope in chapter 3. But you're giving this structure until you explode. When you finally get to chapter 5, this order is removed and you just see the wailing of the prophet. So, in light of what we learned from Lamentations, I want to give us an alphabetized... I don't do the whole thing. I want to give us an alphabetized guide to help us understand what it means for you and for me to lament. What it means to structure the way that we feel when we seem to be frustrated with God. We'll just go A through D. Approach God. That's what God would have us to do when we have things that we are grieving over. Number B, that's not a number. Letter B, be real with God, not to be confused with the app. C, consider God. D, depend on God. So let me explain those a tad bit. When we approach God, what we're saying is he has not left you. He's not left the people of Israel. He is dealing with them and disciplining them harshly in order for them to turn to Him. You can boldly approach Him. So in the face of whatever suffering you're suffering through right now, He has not canceled out your opportunity as a believer to come to Him. This is not God going silent. To be real with God. That means that we have full permission... To tell God that we are frustrated with Him. He can handle it. He can handle what you're walking through. He can handle the difficulties of it. God will not cease to be God because you have something you're working through. He knows you have something you're working through because He made you. 
and to take words from the prophet Jeremiah, he knits you together in your mother's womb. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. He knows everything about you and every bit of stuff that has dumped into your life to cause this pain to happen, he knows it. So talk to him. To consider God would be C. When we are in the face of approaching God, being in the presence of God boldly, talking to him about our pain and our struggle and our suffering, we have to consider how faithful he's been. I reference relatively consistently in here. We take communion each Sunday as a family of faith to remind ourselves of how faithful God continues to be. That his cross does not get canceled out because I had a bad day. That his mercy is new every morning as the scriptures teach us. And I need his mercies to be new because yesterday got really old. I need it. And when we get to the place where we consider his faithfulness, even though all that feels like the hellacious, overwhelming nature of the world is swarming in us, we sit there and we depend on him. That's lament 50,000 feet. What about these people? Assyria was conquered by Babylon. When we look at world leaders, Assyria historically had ruled the world. When you look in the prophet Daniel, if you're a Daniel scholar or you've looked at things on Google, Daniel in the Bible, he deals with Assyria. You, not Daniel, rather. You see uh, him, the idea of Assyria ruling the world in the days of Isaiah. I apologize. And as Assyria rules over the world, there's eventually a new place, a new army that takes them over. The Babylonians. Babylon was one of the world's superpowers. At one point, Israel was made, has made deals with both. Israel makes deals at one point in history with Assyria, trusting in Assyrian gods. At one point in history with Babylon, trusting Babylonian gods, all to the dismay and the dissatisfaction of Yahweh who has told them from the beginning, just trust me. Not just trust in the way that I would say it, just keep trusting me. He's saying, only trust me. This army that they are dealing with in Babylon, the strangest thing happens. They make a deal with Babylon that will eventually lead to Babylon being the superpower of the world. When the writer of the book of Lamentations mentions words about friends and lovers, he's speaking of that. He's speaking of them aligning themselves with pagan gods and pagan realities. And now these former friends and lovers have surrounded them because they didn't just want the rest of the world, they want Jerusalem too. Babylon has surrounded Jerusalem and at the point where we, Jeremiah starts writing for 30 months the city is under siege. They plan to wait for them to come out. Wait them out. That's where we get the phrase. 
And this is the history of what happens while they are waiting them out. There's a famine in the city. The Judean army is fleeing. The temple is burned. The city walls are breached. The people, the very best of the best of Israel, are taken into exile. Leaders are executed. There will be no doubt that Israel belongs to Babylon at the end of this. The city will collapse. Whenever we see suffering, there's the believing and the unbelieving response to it. If we were watching suffering across the world, we, there's a believing and an unbelieving response to it. For the person who has a faith that is anchored in a creator, suffering seems... Wait, for a person who has no faith anchored in a creator, suffering can seem impersonal. That's just the way the world works. It's really messed up. It's terrible. For the believer... When we see suffering, we're trusting that God has not abandoned us in the midst. And there's a possibility that he may use this. I never want God to use my suffering. That's terrible to think about. What's the purpose of suffering? Sometimes it, it, you may see conclusive answers. Other times you go through suffering to be reminded that this isn't the way it is. This, does, this is not what God intends for us and overwhelm over forever everything's not right and sometimes when we look at suffering we need to know we just need to grieve it's okay to grieve it's okay to be broken Chad you keep saying the world's not right what's not right about the world sin It gets everywhere. And it's in all of this. And it's something that every one of us in this room deal with. Sin is missing the mark of God. What has Israel done? Well, the leaders of Israel had sinned by missing God's mark. Because they chose them to worship false gods and to make deals with foreign armies to the dismay of Yahweh. Paul's going to say to us, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That, that's a word that he gives. So we can look at this passage and we can see the problem of Babylon and how they have surrounded Israel, surrounded Judah, laid siege to Jerusalem. But I want you to hear me as kindly and graciously as I can. Babylon has surrounded what sin has already invaded. Sin beat Babylon there. Because we, the hearts of these people were dis, deceitfully wicked. Sin's invaded everything. You and me. It's invaded our friendships. Sin's invaded the world on a global front. It's broken the world. And we should grieve that. It, there is a habit in us to, to choose our own adventure when it comes to news cycles and podcasts. I listen to various podcasts about what's taking place in the world and, and I find myself at times being disinterested by certain topics growing cold and numb to them 
And as a follower of Jesus, I'm, I'm convicted, but that, sh- that should not be the way that it is. I should grieve poverty and oppression and hunger. All of us who are saying that Jesus frees captives should care about that. We should. All of us who are saying that Jesus meets the needs of those who are hungry should care about the broken nature of our world. We should care about what is taking place in the world. But it's not just that. It's not just sin that has invaded the global scale. Sin's more than that, sadly. Sin has invaded other people. We look in the lives of family members and whether it is a sin that, is, that trickles down. When someone deals with death and you look at how did that even happen as the, we reflect on the writing of Jeremiah, how did that take place? It's the sin of the world has gone into everything. Sometimes that sin is interactive with one another. We sin against one another. We notice others sinning against each other. But let's not overlook this, that sin has a personal thing that's there. I sin. You sin. I sin knowingly. I sin sin unknowingly. Because sin has invaded what the problems and the issues of the world have already sieged. What those things have surrounded. So you look to Lamentations chapter 1 and you see this teaching about consequences and disobedience and the emotional effect of sin. And maybe today we can sit with this text and just ask where the hope is. There are glimpses and glimmers of it in the chapter. But when we look at a book of the Bible like this and a chapter of the Bible like this, this told us for 21 and a half of 22 verses, the world's not right. It would be wrong for me to put a bow on it and call it a day. The only answer that we have in the face of a broken world is this person of Jesus who is not a bow. He is more invasive than sin could ever be. He can deal with the fact that sin has invaded our souls and he can cast it out. C.S. Lewis at one point said, no one ever told me that grief felt so much like fear. There's a possibility for you that you're in a season of grief and fear today. I want to invite you somewhere. I want to invite you to the cross of Jesus. I want to invite you to the one who will make whole, broken people, who will offer forgiveness in the face of sinful lives who restores what is broken and loves those who feel as if they should not be loved. The one who casts out fear and and replaces despair with hope. So I invite all of us today to just sit in the weight of this passage and to ask the Lord to teach us things about himself that we did not expect him to teach over these next eight weeks. As we move together towards Easter, 
hoping to burst into a celebration of hope together. But for now, for now, for now, will we let the weight of our tears sit on our chests and beg God to remind us that He is the only one that makes the world that is broken right. Why don't you bow your heads with me this morning? Lord, I, I confess that I don't have all of the answers and but I do see God that just this how sin and its rebellion come after us. So for everyone who came into this space this morning with a with a list of hows. I pray they'll turn to you. Maybe not for answers, but as the answer. For everyone who walked in full of fear and grieving on top of grief. God, I pray pray that you'll meet them in their sorrow. For everyone who's openly sinning, God, I pray that you'll help them to turn from that sin and turn toward you. to believe that you're better and that you're good and that you're for us. God, I pray that for the believing people in this room that we're not numb to the Bible and we're not numb to you and we're not numb to your cross. God, for those of us who are here who feel as if we are surrounded right now, Would you meet us in the middle of that? To let us see the adversary that is ourself and the adversaries that we have chosen. And let us walk away from those things and walk to you. We ask it in Jesus' name. If you're a believer, if you're not a believer in this space, we're about to take communion as a faith family. I want to just kindly ask for you not to take it because we believe this is something that believers do. If you are a person in relationship with Christ, whether you're a member of grace or not, when we take communion each week, you're invited to this. You're invited to the table to drink of the cup, to eat of the bread, and Jared will guide us through that in a moment. If you are in need of prayer, I'm going to be up here at the front uh, by this table. I'd love to pray for you intentionally, and I would love to pray for you personally. But for those of us who, again, I would invite us before we jump up, as I do every week, but especially this week, before we jump out of our chairs and go get our, our wafer and our juice, I would just ask that you would kind of roll around in this passage a little bit. 